There's never a good time to lose a wallet, but a couple days before you move to a different state is definitely not the time you want to lose your wallet. And yet, there I found myself just a couple days before we moved to Wisconsin and I couldn't find my wallet. So I started to look everywhere. I looked in the kitchen. I couldn't find it. I looked over on the counter in the kitchen where we pile up all the mail for about six-week increments that aren't bills, but we convince ourselves we'll go through this soon, and then we don't, and then six weeks later, it's in a massive pile, and one of us gets fed up with it and then go through it. I, I pulled apart that whole pile. It wasn't there. I, I started looking in all the rooms downstairs. I started looking in all the rooms upstairs. I started pulling apart my kids' rooms, not because... They're little kleptomaniacs, but they were kid little, real little at the time, so they might have just grabbed it thinking it was a toy and playing with it, or maybe they started a life of crime. I don't know. So I started pulling apart their rooms, couldn't find it there. After about an hour of looking for my wallet, I called my wife, who was at work, and I said, hey, do you know where my wallet is? And she said, I have no idea where your wallet is. I said, are you sure? And she said, yes, I'm sure. Uh, look in the car. I got to go. Bye. And then I went out and I looked in the car and it wasn't there. And so I called my wife back to ask her if she knew where my wallet was again. And she sent it to voicemail. And so I left her a voicemail that let her know I couldn't believe that she sent my call to voicemail and I still hadn't found my wallet. And then I sent her a text just letting her know I was still looking for the wall. She didn't respond to that. I started pulling apart our bedroom. I, I, I looked in the nightstand. I looked in the dresser. I looked in our closets. I was looking every. I was looking in the bathrooms. I, I looked in the basement. I'd already gone outside and, and looked in the car. But then I started pulling apart the garage, was looking through everything in the garage, went out to the shed in the backyard, looked everywhere in the shed, why the wallet would be in the shed. I have no idea, but I was looking in the shed for the wallet. I was pulling apart the entire house. I couldn't find it. And after about three, three and a half hours, I was staring at the trash can. I'm like, no, I really don't want to do this. But I didn't have any other option. So I open up the lid to the trash can, and I start cutting open all of the trash bags and going through them. And we had real young kids at the time, and I can still smell and taste it when I think about it, not because I ate anything, but just sometimes there are things that you just smell and you can taste them a little bit. And it was just, I went through the entire trash can, cut open every trash bag, and I didn't find my wallet ran in and, and showered because I needed to. And after, uh, after showering, it was around the time that my wife got home from work. And I had torn apart that house for four hours, tore apart the house, couldn't find my wallet at all. My wife gets home from work. She goes into the car. She told me to look in. And right between the driver's seat, in the center console, wedged right between them, was the wallet I had spent the previous four hours looking for that I couldn't find. Isn't it amazing how much effort we put in to find something that's lost when it's valuable, when it's important? 
I mean, this wasn't as simple as calling and canceling all your credit cards, grabbing a, a number at the Bureau of Meter, Motor Vehicles, and then spending the next three hours waiting for your number to be called to get a new ID. It wasn't like that because we were about to relocate. We were about to move states. I needed to find this wallet, and I spent hours searching for the wallet because it was something that was valuable, and it was something that I really needed. This idea of finding things and lost and found is inherent in all of us. And when we really value something, we put in a lot of energy and a lot of effort to find it. And that's nothing new. That's human nature. And it's something we're going to be looking at today that Jesus used to bring home a couple points in Luke chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles or your phones or tablets with the Bible app on them, with you, I'd encourage you to go to Luke chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 1, and you can follow along with us there. If you're streaming from home, the verses will be available on the screen below. But we're going to see a couple stories that Jesus told about this theme and about this idea of lost and found. And so if you join me there, Luke 15, starting in verse 1, we read these words. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to, near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And read that again. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, tax collectors and sinners, as we've talked about a lot recently, were not exactly the lifestyle that people looked at and approved of. These were people that, that had some baggage in their life, and everybody knew it. Everybody knew about some of the regrets that they carried around. Everybody knew some of their conduct wasn't the most becoming. Everyone had an idea of what they were up to, and everybody saw their conduct and disapproved of it. This was not the in crowd. These were people whose lives left something to be desired, and it was well known. The Pharisees, on the other hand, these were the outwardly most spiritual people that you would find. These were people who had the Bible memorized chapter and verse. They could quote scripture for any occasion, and they had a whole system in place that they would do to make them appear as though they were close to God. The scribes were another group of of scholars in that day. So on one hand, you have all these people who, who identify as religious, and when other people look at them, they would identify them as religious. And on the other hand, you have all these people whose lives are a wreck. Their lives are a mess, and nobody makes the mistake of thinking the tax collectors and the sinners are spiritual people. In fact, just the opposite. Everybody knows what the tax collectors and sinners are all about, what their lives are all about. And yet, what we see, and this is not a parable, the first couple verses of Luke chapter 15. This is Luke giving us the context of which Jesus would go on to tell the parables, which are stories. What Luke tells us about the immediate context is that this is the scene that's unfolding. That these outcasts of society, the tax collectors and the sinners, are drawn to Jesus. There's an appeal about the message of Jesus that they want to hear. Now, we know from Scripture 
throughout the Gospels. It's not like every tax collector and every sinner came to hear Jesus speak and magically on the spot gave their life to God and changed their heart and their life. In fact, just the opposite. The vast majority of people that came and heard Jesus speak left unchanged. They left and they didn't change much about their conduct at all. We, we see that unfold throughout the Gospels. And yet there's something appealing about Jesus that this crowd of people who nobody, who nobody would make the mistake of thinking, wow, that's a spiritual person, is drawing near to hear what Jesus has to say. And what is the response of the spiritual people of that day when they see people who are far from God drawing near Jesus to hear his message? Is it one of celebration? Are they thankful to God that these people whose lives are a wreck and who have regret after regret and whose life is spiraling out of control, are they excited that they have come to hear the message of Jesus? Are they glad about that? No. No, what we're told is that they grumbled about this fact, which forces us to ask ourselves a question individually and collectively as a church. And that question is, do we rejoice or resist when people who are far from God take an interest in following after God? Do we rejoice over that fact or do we resist it? Are we excited when people who are far from God, whose lives are a mess and whose lives are a wreck, who live a lifestyle that we wouldn't agree with? Are we excited when they seem to be spiritually interested? Are we excited when they want to investigate the claims of Jesus? Or do we resist it because, oh, I don't like how they conduct themselves, and oh, I'm well aware of what's going on in their life in this situation. Everybody knows this is what they're doing. And What's our response? As people, we need to rejoice when people who are far from God investigate the claims of Jesus. And sometimes that might make us uncomfortable. Sometimes that might mean there are going to be things that we don't love, that we have to deal with. And yet, that must be our response, that we are people who rejoice over that fact. They grumbled. They said, oh, there's Jesus he receives them. He doesn't dismiss them. The first message of Jesus to the sinners and the tax collectors wasn't one of condemnation. He receives them, and not only that, but he builds a relationship with them. He eats with them. Do we rejoice over this, or do we resist it? And knowing the tension that was there, Jesus now begins to tell a few parables. And for the, for the rest of Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells parables that convey the heart of God. And we don't have time to look at all of Luke 15 today, but we're going to see a couple of them. Luke 15 verses 3 and 4 say this, so Jesus told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country? And go after the one that is lost until he finds it? So Jesus tells a story of a shepherd and a sheep has wandered off. A sheep is gone. Now there are a hundred sheep. 
in the grand scheme of things, it's a lot better to have the 99 sheep together. And the one sheep, yeah, it's gone. It's, it's lost. That's a sad story. But we still have the 99. So the shepherd's going to stay with the 99 and mourn the loss of the one. But you can't leave the 99 to go after the one sheep who wandered off, right? That's not at all what Jesus says. In fact, it's a no-brainer in the story of Jesus. That the shepherd leaves the 99 behind. Without hesitation. The shepherd leaves the 99 sheep behind and goes after the one sheep who is lost. That's how much value each individual sheep has to its shepherd. That if there is one that is lost, he goes out to get the one who is lost. I know some of you wrestle with your value. You wrestle with your self-worth, and this has been a lifelong pursuit. You grew up in a very hard time, in an incredibly difficult environment. And you can't recall being told you were loved. You can't recall being told that you matter. You can't recall being told that you have value. You can recall being told you were a mistake. You can recall being told constantly of all your shortcomings. You can recall being made to feel insignificant. For the rest of your life, you've wondered, do I really matter? Do I really have value? Am I really worth it? And the answer to that question is unequivocally yes. The picture that Jesus gives us here of the shepherd going after the sheep is the picture of our creator God running after every single one of us. Seeing us, seeing that we need to be rescued, and coming after us. That is the picture that we're given here of our Creator. That is the love that God has for each and every one of us. And I wish this answer would just penetrate not only your head, but your heart as well. And I wish that you would just grasp onto it and realize the immense value you have to God. Not because of anything you could do, not because of anything you deserve, but because God just loves you so much so that he rescued you that is the answer to the question of whether or not you have value 
That is the answer to the question of whether or not you have worth. And that answer makes it so you don't have to question those things and you don't have to wrestle with those things in your mind and you don't have to enter into relationships where you feel like you constantly need to be doing some sort of transaction where if I serve somebody well enough, if I love somebody well enough, if I give somebody something of value enough, then they'll see me, then they'll know me, then they'll appreciate me, then they'll love me, then I will have value and I will have worth. And the message of your creator is you already have value and you already have worth more than you can even comprehend. And I hope that message penetrates not just your head, because that's easy to intellectually understand, but I hope it penetrates your heart. Because when you understand the way that God sees you and the way that God values you, it will change your life. And this picture that Jesus gives us is of one sheep that's worth the shepherd leaving 99 others for to go after the one. Now, the 99 figured out how to follow the shepherd. The 99 figured out how to stick together. The one sheep didn't manage to figure that out. And yet, what do we see? That the, the worth of that sheep isn't diminished in the shepherd's eyes because of its failure. The worth of that sheep isn't diminished in the shepherd's eyes because the other 99 could keep it together. Some of your lives right now are a mess. They're an absolute wreck. Some of you think you, you got us fooled. I mean, some of you do. Some of you, not so much, but go on and keep pretending it. But understand this, your mistakes don't diminish your value. Your past doesn't diminish how God sees you. The shepherd goes after the one because that sheep still has value to God. And he searches until he finds it. And when he has found it, verse 5 says, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep. That was lost. What does he do? He finds it. He clutches it. He rejoices. I remember growing up, we had these, these shows we'd watch together as a family. This was well before the days of, of DVR, streaming, having everything at your fingertips. Our children have no idea how spoiled they are right now. If you missed an episode of Saved by the Bell, you may never see it again, or you would just have to pray for a rerun on a Saturday morning in the summer because you don't know what almost tore Zach and Kelly apart this week, and you just don't know, and it's really difficult if you forgot to set the VCR to record that, what was going on at Bayside High. Our kids will never understand the struggle that I experienced growing up if I missed one of the shows. So we would have these shows we would watch together as a family, and one of them was called Rescue 911. And there were these, they would play these calls from people calling into 911 call centers, and they would do dramatic reenactments of the events that I'm sure if we got some video of now would just be horribly wonderful to watch. 
But one of the one of the scenes was of this kid that ran away. And they called 911 and the fire department found him and the fire department was rejoicing and the family was rejoicing and the community was rejoicing and the show goes to commercial and my parents go, don't think that's the response you're getting if you run away. You run away, we're beating your butt. Like that's, like, so I, I don't know what to tell you. My parents weren't like Jesus apparently because here what we see is the shepherd doesn't find the sheep, take his staff, whack it across the head and tell how stupid it is for the fact that it couldn't keep up with the other 99 sheep. It picks the sheep up, puts it around its neck, it caresses it, and it rejoices that it's been found. And not only that, but the shepherd throws a party that the sheep has been found. He doesn't just keep it to himself that the sheep is found. He's calling the neighbors and texting his friends, letting everybody know, we're having a party tonight because we found the sheep. It's back. Jesus in Luke 15, 7 goes on to say this, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This is the party in heaven. This is the party in heaven that every time somebody who is far from God realizes their need for salvation and their need for a savior. And when they make the decision to follow Jesus, there is more joy in heaven over that. And some of you right now are thinking, oh, what? I'm a Christian now, so my life doesn't matter anymore? No, you already had your party, all right? You just missed it. Heaven threw the party without you there. Don't be greedy. You already got your party. It's not about you anymore. Heaven's moved on, and they're partying over other people now. That's just what happens. And here's the deal. As people and as a church, we need to celebrate the things that God celebrates. And this is the cause for celebration in heaven. Not that 99 people who are following Jesus are doing it the right way. Yes, that matters. Yes, that's important. But you want the big party? You want the one where they bring out like the best of the best food? And that special cake? Not just like grocery store cake, like Dairy Queen ice cream cake. That, that's when a sinner repents. That's when somebody who is far from God makes the decision to turn their life to him. Jesus goes on to drive this point home. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. So we've gone from a lost sheep to a lost coin. And we've gone from a hundred sheep to ten silver coins. And now there are nine silver coins because one is lost. And what's the response of the woman in the story? She puts the house lights on 
She puts all the lights on. She deep cleans the house, not just like the regular cleaning you do, like the deep cleaning you do before your mom comes over and you don't want to hear the snide remarks, like just tears the house apart and deep cleans the thing, tears everything apart, looking for the one lost coin. She doesn't say, well, I hate that I lost it, but I still have 90% of my wealth. I mean, I hate that I lost the one, but I still have nine of the ten silver coins, so I'm not going to let this ruin my day. I'm not going to let lose any sleep over this. This isn't the end of the world. No, she turns on every light, tears the house apart, and doesn't rest until she finds the lost coin. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Again, celebrating the things that she cares about. Jesus wraps us up by saying this, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The joy of angels in God. Which brings it back to us and asks the question of, Do we care? Do we care individually? Do we care collectively about the things that God cares about? That's the question that we have to answer individually. That's the question that we have to ask collectively. Luke 15 is fascinating. We don't have time to go on and look at the whole chapter. But from here, Jesus goes on to tell the story of two sons one of whom runs away from his family and lives a wild lifestyle and then comes back. So in one chapter from Luke 15, we have the picture of one sheep out of a hundred that matters to God. One coin out of ten, that matters to God. One person, out of two, that matters to God. And the implications that this has for us as individuals and collectively as Lakeside are things we've already started to talk about in the previous weeks and what we're finalizing today. As we conclude our look at who are we as a church and what drives us, what drives our heartbeat, what drives the things that we do and the reason why we do them. Again, Lakeside exists to help people move one step closer to Jesus and reach those far from him. And a few weeks ago, we talked about how this barrel represents Lakeside. And how God has put us here in the Lakeshore region, and He has given us a desire to see people's lives changed. We look at our region and we see that people need the hope of salvation. That people need lives that are impacted and influenced by a relationship with Jesus. And how God has enabled us to be a piece of that picture along the Lakeshore region. And as we are faithful in being who God has called us to be, God will bring us opportunities to encourage people and challenge them to grow. And yet what we saw 
is that this requires for us to do some things. The first thing we said we're going to do is we're going to be people who are innovative and creative. As a church at Lakeside, we are going to be innovative and creative, realizing that most innovation and most creativity fails. Most innovation and most creativity fails. But we're going to be persistent and undeterred. And you might scratch your head and say, why if most innovation and why if most creativity fails, would the church pride itself on being innovative and creative? Why would you worry about being persistent and undeterred? Well, a few weeks ago when we looked at the parable of the sower, the message that we saw from Jesus is that there were four types of soil that the seed landed on. But only one of the four types of soil produced the result that the farmer ultimately wanted. Only one of the four types of soil produced the harvest that was desirable. Which means that there are going to be far more people who reject the message than accept it. And that's why we're going to continue to be innovative and creative. We will be persistent and we will be undeterred. We're going to be driven by prayer and bold in action. We're going to pray like everything depends upon God, because it does. But we're not going to sit idly by and just pray. We will pray because it does all depend on God, but we're going to work like it all depends on us. Because we're not going to use this as an excuse to be lazy. We're going to be driven and we're going to be laser focused and hard working. We're going to be generous in our expression of thanksgiving for all that God has done for us. In the fact that he has saved us. We're not giving out of compulsion, but we are generous in our giving as an expression of thanks for all that God has done for us. And now today... We're going to commit to loving people whose lives are a mess. We're going to love people whose lives are a mess, who don't have it all together. We, as a church, are going to love people who haven't yet made the decision to follow Jesus, realizing they matter to God and they matter to us as a result. And we are going to worry about making sure everything that we do, everything we do, is done with love. That we see the lost sheep, the lost coin, in the same way that God does. That we don't look at the regret. We don't focus on the mess, but we see the opportunity that each person has for God to do something redemptive in their life, for their story to be a story of restoration and of hope and forgiveness and grace. And that God would choose to use us, Lakeside, in what he's doing along the Lakeshore region. Not because he needs us. God doesn't need us for anything. But instead, because he has chosen to allow us to partner with him 
in making an impact for his kingdom. That is what drives us. That is why we say we are all about helping people move one step closer to Jesus and reaching those far from him. Because we believe that God wants to transform this region. And we want to be part of what he's doing. God, I pray that you would use us to accomplish your work. God, give us hearts for people like your heart for people. Help us see beyond the mistakes. Help us see beyond the regrets. Help us love people where they are, pointing them to you. I pray, God, we would rejoice over the fact that people are seeking after you, and we would do nothing to resist them coming closer to you. God, that we would be innovative and we would be creative. That we would give ourselves permission to fail at some new things we try, but we would not sit idly by and not do everything we possibly can to see you work. God, we're going to pray like it all depends on you because it does. And we're going to ask you to accomplish really big things through Lakeside for your glory. But we're going to commit, God, to not sit idly by. And we are going to work hard because it is a privilege that we have. To partner with you and what you God, that we will express our appreciation and we will be generous with our time. We will be generous with our talents. We will be generous with our finances as an expression of thanks for all that you have already done for us and you're saving us. And God, we will value each and every person. We have the ability to connect with that we would never neglect the one for the 99. We would never neglect the one for the other nine. We would never neglect the one. We would see them as you do. God, we're asking you to allow us to be part of what you're going to do in transforming the Lakeshore region. We're asking you to use us, God for your glory, that we would help people move one step closer to you and reach those far from you. Please use us, Jesus. In your name we do pray.